Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is on hypokalemia. The goal is to try to keep this as concise and to the point as possible. I think it's a really important topic. It's an incredibly common issue in critical care. It's also a topic that I think gets quite a bit of attention as you go through nursing school or go through orientation in the ICU. But I also think often that heightened awareness almost is to a detriment because the reality is hyperkalemia is much more concerning in general than hypokalemia. And hypokalemia as a whole has such a wide range of underlying causes. I think it's really important to be more mindful of what are some of our underlying reasons behind it and guiding our resuscitation. Because the reality is aggressive resuscitation is not always warranted simply because often hypokalemia is asymptomatic. Now, one of the reasons hypokalemia is a bit less concerning is remember, how do we measure our potassium levels? Well, that's off a serum lab value. And remember, serum potassium is about 0.4% of total body potassium. So we have about 98% of total body potassium is intracellular, 2% is extracellular. And of that 2% that's extracellular, about 0.4-0.5% is in our serum, which is the lab value that we are using to estimate total body potassium. So it's always important to remember that is how we're measuring our potassium, but also it reminds us if our serum is depleted, we have a massive reserve of potassium inside our cells, and through transcellular shifts, we can more easily replenish our extracellular potassium levels. Conversely, if we're hyperkalemic in our serum, we have a concern there, because remember, most of our potassium in our body is in our cells. And so, of course, that is one of our reasons why hyperkalemia is always a little more concerning than hypokalemia. Now, let's define our terms here. What is hypokalemia? So hypokalemia is a potassium under 3.5 milliequivalents per liter. In general, we think about severe hypokalemia when we move under 2.5 milliequivalents per liter. Interestingly, many patients with hypokalemia are completely asymptomatic, and it can be often very difficult to find it out without a patient seeing it on a lab value. We're going to talk in a minute about the clinical manifestation. It, I think it's important, though, to first talk about what are the reasons why we might be hypokalemic, and then think through what would the clinical manifestations be, and then how does that guide our resuscitation? In general, when we have a low potassium, we can think of it in three categorizations. Firstly, we can think of it as we don't actually have low total body potassium. We just have low potassium in our serum. So that's called a transcellular shift. And there are a lot of different reasons why we could have a transcellular shift. 
We could also have a decrease in total body potassium. So that means we have a loss of potassium in the body. And that's typically thought of in two ways, extra renal loss and renal loss. So renal loss, of course, would be excretion. We would be thinking about in our urine from our kidneys. Extra renal, we could be thinking about it primarily as GI loss. So we could be thinking about diarrhea, vomiting. We could think about NG. We could be looking at profuse sweating, like significant, significant sweating. These are all extra renal potassium losses. Now, we also have another category, which could be poor intake of potassium. Now, this is pretty rare. It actually very rarely is the ultimate reason we're hypokalemic, but we typically see this in our anorexic patients or patients with anorexia nervosa or your chronic alcoholic patients. This can be quite common. Now, Often, this is a little less of a concern in critical care. It's something a bit more often you're going to see in the emergency department. Also, too, because the labs are going to show often kind of the chronic electrolyte imbalances across the board. And so the potassium replacement would be part of our overall resuscitation for those patients. More often in the critical care world, what you're looking at is either transcellular shifts or a decrease in total body K. And then we have to figure out, is it renal or extra renal loss? So let's talk about transcellular shifts. Now remember, potassium is predominantly intracellular cation, so the positively charged ion. Now, potassium, though, moves in and out of the cell two different ways, right? One, we do have the potassium channels, and they're leaky. Potassium always actually leaks a little bit outside of the cells. We also have our sodium-potassium pump, which predominantly helps us restore to that action potential baseline after that depolarization. That helps restore, but again... That is one of the ways we're moving potassium, and we also have those potassium channels leaking. Now, there are certain situations which we can affect potassium moving into cells. One of the interesting ones is stimulation of our beta-2 adrenergic receptors. So these receptors do quite a few different physiological functions. Actually, when we are want to decrease intestinal motility, so we want to slow the GI system down, those beta-2 receptors are activated. They actually create smooth muscle dilation or the smooth muscle where they, they will um, stop contracting. We will have in like our arterial system, it leads to the dilation of them, which can decrease blood pressure. Interestingly, these receptors are actually insulin acts upon them. And so because of the activity of insulin on them, it can affect the movement of potassium inside the cell. These receptors as well, pretty interestingly, um, can be activated by epinephrine, whether exogenous or endogenous. So 
whether you're on an epinephrine drip, you've done epinephrine pushes, or just super high catecholamine release by an individual in an incredibly high stress situation, that can actually affect this protein, this, this protein that sits on that cell wall. It actually can interact with it and help bring potassium inside the cell. Now remember, that's always kind of against the concentration gradient, right? Potassium wants to move outside the cell. But there's a few situations like this that can really affect that. And so some of the really common ones you're going to see in critical care are some of your inhaled beta agonists like albuterol, salbutamol, terbutaline, really common. We do smooth muscle relaxation, especially in your airway, but these typically lead to about up to a 0.5 milliequivalent per liter decrease in your potassium, which for a lot of patients is not too significant, but if they're already hypokalemic, that could be a bit of a concern. And as often is the case, if you have a lot of airway concerns, many times you might have some concerns with fluid overload, maybe you're diuresing, so if you're on a loop diuretic, of course, we'll talk about this in a second, that puts you at an increased risk for, risk for being hypokalemic, and then you've gone ahead with an inhaled beta agonist, and again, we're going to even further potentiate the risk of hypokalemia. So these are the kind of things we want to think about. Alkalosis, interestingly, can actually lead to transcellular shifts, whether respiratory or metabolic. They can increase the shift of potassium inside of cells. Hypothermia actually will cause the shift of potassium outside the cells to inside the cells. And of course, insulin. Now, more often in critical care, what we're looking at are patients either in a DKA scenario, whether they're on insulin drips, or you have post-surgical patients or like a post-cardiothoracic surgery patient. You're on an insulin drip because they have the high cortisol production post-procedural, but then we're trying to manage the, the sugars, but this can also lead to hypokalemia, and it's really just a shift. We haven't changed our total body potassium. So a lot of transcellular shifts can often be easily dealt with. And, and, and for these situations, we're thinking about things like hypothermia. Well, we just need to be normothermic. If we're on an insulin drip, we need to think about potassium replacement, of course, but also we need to think about the aggressiveness potentially that we're using our insulin. We can think of things like metabolic states. Again, we need to correct the metabolic acid or alkalosis in this situation. When we're thinking about things like using a beta agonist, right? Do we really need to be doing this? Could we pre-treat, et cetera? So these are some of the things we think about when we're looking at transcellular shifts, and they're really important to understand. Now, there's also a really rare but unique transcellular shift that occurs, and it's actually called pseudo-hypokalemia. And this is when you draw a lab and you allow the lab to sit for too long, and what actually happens is that often the cells will absorb the, the potassium, especially if you have really high cell counts, like a high leukocyte count, so your white count's really high. 
and you, you draw your lab, but it sits for an hour, hour and a half, they can actually absorb some of your potassium and it, and it leads to a decrease in your serum K value, which is called a pseudo hypokalemia because it's not a real lab value. It is quite rare, but it is something to remember. It is a transcellular shift technically, um, but it's something to remember about the importance of really that integrity of our lab values. So we talked about a transcellular shift. So the next question is, we don't think it's a transcellular shift. And often that can be looked at pretty easily. We can say, okay, are we on a large amount of insulin or not? Are we hypothermic or not? Okay, have we given a medication that could cause a transcellular shift? Okay, no. If we've been able to go through those things, our next question is, well, we must be losing the potassium somewhere. So where are we losing it? And in general, we can think about the diagram as follows. We're hypokalemic. We've ruled out a transcellular shift. So one of our options is diagnostic. We could do a urine potassium. So if our patient's making good urine, we could send urinalysis down and we could do a urine K. Now, this can be really helpful because, number one, if we have less than 30 milliequivalents per liter of potassium in our urine, we say, hmm, we're not actually excreting that much potassium in our urine. So our potassium must be extra renal. Now, conversely, if we see a significant amount of potassium, let's say greater than 30 milliequivalents per liter in our urine, that gives us an indication that we probably are losing a significant amount of potassium in our urine. Now, the next question is, if we're losing potassium in our urine, can we further delineate what's going on? And sometimes this is where a urine chloride is used. So if we have a low urine chloride level, often we're thinking about things like NG output or we're thinking about alkalosis. And if we have a really high urine chloride level, we typically are thinking about things like diuretic use or magnesium depletion. So let's go through this in a second. Now, we, we looked at this from the, the standpoint of urinalysis. But the reality is often a lot of these are pretty obvious too. So let's take our extra renal loss for a second. Extra renal losses, one of our most common ones in critical care is diarrhea. Now we normally lose, you know, 10 to 15 milliequivalents of potassium every day through stool. But in diarrhea and especially inflammatory diarrhea, we could be losing up to 40 milliequivalents per liter in diarrhea. So on a patient that has profuse, profuse diarrhea in the ICU, we could be talking about 200 to 400 milliequivalents per day deficit on potassium. And that's really significant. You know, I think about that regularly. We have a lot of patients which end up having, you know, they're on tube feeds and they have inflammatory states and they have pretty significant diarrhea where like you might have a rectal tube where every shift you're changing the liter bag like twice a shift sometimes and over over a 24-hour period that's four plus liters and so that can lead to really significant potassium loss and so that's something to think about and it's usually pretty obvious but it also is something that 
you can miss clinically because I think a lot of times with potassium, it's drawn to the kidneys and we forget what we could be doing and be losing simply through severe diarrhea. And especially too, if you have a patient that's pretty ambulatory and they're having diarrhea in a bedside commode and you're not quite measuring it, you may not realize just how much fluid and electrolytes they're losing through that diarrhea. So diarrhea is a critical uh, way we could be losing losing our potassium. Now, another option could be through NG loss. Now, NG loss can be a little confusing because it's not the actual NG suction that is leading to a loss of potassium. What it actually is is a loss of volume, but specifically it's a loss of protons. We lose a lot of acid in our stomach drainage. And so when we have a NG tube to low intermittent, intermittent suction, and let's say you're getting out a liter plus a shift or more, maybe you're getting two liters a shift out. What that leads to is a proton deficit. You end up removing a lot of protons, which actually ultimately affects the the way our kidneys end up regulating potassium. And so we actually end up losing more potassium than normal because of that. And so NG loss is a, is a critical driver potentially in potassium loss. Now, Another extra renal loss is profuse sweating. Now, typically this on its own is not going to be a, a primary issue, but sometimes you have significantly diaphoretic patients. They've been febrile. You're on a cooling blanket, but they just remain persistently diaphoretic. Is this the only way that you're going to end up hypokalemic? No. But could this be a significant contributing factor? Yes, it actually can be. And again, if you already have some diarrhea, you already have an NG on LAS, and you're already having significant diaphoresis, this is a real concern. Now, we can also start thinking about our renal losses. Now, renal losses, it's worth reading on the Internet Book of Critical Care. They go into a little bit more detail. The main thing I want to talk about is a few situations here. Remember, our body normally will excrete potassium due to aldosterone, but we have a large wide range of situations which can lead to hyperaldosteronism, and so that can lead to excreting too much potassium. A really common issue is diuretics, and so again, we have diuretics or loop diuretics in particular lead to the reabsorption of sodium but the loss of potassium, and this obviously can lead to pretty significant losses. And so often when you're doing pretty aggressive diuresis, it often is good to pre-treat to get ahead of the curve. Now, something that is important to understand is magnesium. Magnesium is critical in the process and the reabsorption of potassium in the kidneys. If we have hypomagnesia, so we have low mag levels, we are not going to be able to reabsorb potassium appropriately. And because of this, if we have hypomagnesia, no matter how much we keep replacing potassium, we are going to keep losing K. And so magnesium is a critical driver in, high, in hypokalemia. And so often one of the first things you want to look at when you see a really low K value is you want to also look at your mag or make sure you run a mag value. It is incredibly, incredibly important. 
Now, the clinical manifestations of hypokalemia tend to be honestly asymptomatic. You sometimes will see some diffuse weakness, but in general, a lot of patients do not have too many symptoms. Now, usually about two and a half and under is where we start to see the symptoms. About 50% of people will have EKG abnormalities. Now, the challenge with EKGs is that we tend to see three things. First is U-wave prominence. So we usually have about a one millimeter increase in a U-wave. You get flattened or inverted T-waves, and we get QT prolongation. Now, the challenge with this is that 50% of severely hypokalemic patients will have no ECG abnormalities. 50% will, but you can't use the ECG to determine or guide treatment to assume you are hypokalemic because we have a wide range of situations that could cause this. For example, QT prolongation. Well, hypokalasemia and hypomagnesia both create QT prolongation. We also could be on QT prolongating medications. We could be on Zofran. We could be on azithromycin, right? We have like, there's so many meds out there that QT prolongate. We could have a patient that at baseline has QT prolongation. Um, we could be looking at a situation where we have prominent U waves. Well, well, digoxin can cause prominent U waves. And so these are the things we want to think about when we look at an, at an EKG to determine care is it's really important to understand your baseline and then to look at the changes. And that's one of the reasons why a baseline 12 lead can be really beneficial. Or if you're just looking at like a five lead, a six lead and saying, okay, what's my baseline? And then looking at changes from there, that can help us to look at how symptomatic the patient is. One of the important things to remember is that rarely does hypokalemia cause rhythms and or dysrhythmias on its own. It typically is going to be one of multiple triggering variables that lead to an arrhythmia or a potential fatal arrhythmia. For example, hypokalemia on its own rarely leads to VT, but if you have severe hypomagnesia and hypokalemia, your chance of going into VT or even torsades is pretty significant. Consider too, you have a heart failure patient with a reduced EF, they have some myocardial ischemia, the heart has a history of having some VT arrhythmias, and then you add on severe hypokalemia, now we've progressed into a place where we have another contributing factor. And so typically, our clinical manifestations of hypokalemia are largely in addition to other underlying issues. For example, a lot of the dysrhythmias often when you're seeing symptomatic patients, it's a lot of times related often to hypomagnesia more than the hypokalemia. They often come together. And so many times correcting the hypomagnesia is the real critical variable. But remember that many times you're not going to see clear clinical manifestations. Now, I do think it's important to, to bring up that there are times where we have profoundly low potassium levels that do lead to a fatal arrhythmia, or we have a pulsatile severe dysrhythmia that we need to deal with. Now, this is one of the situations that really guides resuscitation. 
In general, in these situations, there's actually studies that suggest you can do 20 milli equivalents IV push over two to three minutes, and that can be safe in those severe situations. In situations where you have a patient who has profoundly hypokalemic, we have some very concerning dysrhythmias, but they're pulsatile, the patient is alert, they can go up to 80 milliequivalents per hour safely in some studies. And so remember, our normal guiding principle is approximately 20 milliequivalents per hour IV. But in these serious situations, you can safely administer pretty significant amounts IV if needed. Now, when we think about resuscitation, we want to ask ourselves, what is our goal potassium and what is our goal route? Our goal potassium for most ICU patients is greater than three and a half. A lot of cardiovascular cardiac ICUs will typically shoot for around four or greater simply because those hearts tend to be a little, little more touchy. For our renal failure patients, we want to be a little more conservative, especially if our GFR is under 30. We start thinking about maybe shooting for three to three and a half because we really don't want to overshoot. For our DKA patients, we typically are going to shoot for a much higher potassium. Now, the reason for that is in DKA, remember, you have a state where you have a hyperglycemic state. And so because of that, you have significant polyuria, you have a lot of fluid loss, you get a lot of potassium loss. In addition in DKA, because of that, also the intermediate, one of our intermediates is beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that's actually negatively charged and that can interact with our positively charged potassium, further dropping our potassium levels. And so in DKA, we wanna push the potassium higher because we know it's gonna continue to drop. And then as we treat DKA with IV insulin, fluid resuscitation, we furthermore know we're going to have challenges with potassium, and so our goal is a bit more aggressive. The primary goal is to calculate our potassium deficit. There's a lot of different potassium deficit calculators out there. Remember our potassium deficit when we're hypokalemic, we're a little less aggressive. We don't have to give as much to restore total body potassium than when we're hypokalemic, right? It's a little bit different when we're trying to bring it down. And so for most of our resuscitation efforts, we're gonna do our calculations. So we need to say, what is our goal potassium? We're gonna say, what is our total body K deficit? The next is, we kind of talked about it a second ago, if we're having fatal arrhythmias or, or really concerning arrhythmias, this is where we start thinking about our IV push or a very aggressive IV resuscitation. That tends to be our primary goal always also considering magnesium replacement in that process as well, and that can be done safely and aggressively. PO tends to be the preferred route. Remember, one of our challenges with potassium is it is a big pill. Some people don't tolerate it well, have trouble swallowing it. If you're in a shock state, we typically are gonna guess or we're on really high vasopressors. Maybe our GI absorption is compromised. We might wanna do IV. Brand new post-op, stroke patient. Again, maybe the, the PO is not the best route and we're gonna to progress to IV. If we're considering PO, we could do a potassium chloride route or we could do 
a a route like that might have a citric acid. Uh, one of the reasons that may guide yes or no is a, is a potassium chloride solution. The chloride is negatively charged, which could worsen an acidosis state. And so if we are possibly in a, a metabolic acidosis state and we, we maybe could benefit from some bicarbonate, we could do a potassium uh, citrate type solution. And the advantage of that is it would ultimately get converted into bicarbonate. And many times you might run into that with your pharmacist asking about your bicarb levels and looking at a pH and that can help guide resuscitation. With IV replacement, let's say we can't do PO replacement with IV replacement, the standard is 10 to 20 milliequivalents per hour. And in a peripheral, typically 10 milliequivalents per hour. And if a good central line with great dilution, we can do 20 milliequivalents per hour. Remember what you can do is if you have two peripherals, uh, one of the issues is it does create a burning sensation in a lot of patients. So you could do 10 mil equivalents in one IV, 10 mil equivalents in another IV. It's something I've done before. You can also do some dilution with a normal saline, LR, etc., which is something that's been done as well to help with the burning sensation. Remember, with really aggressive, severe situations, it could go up to 80 milliequivalents safely, but the standard for a central line is 20 milliequivalents an hour, and a peripheral would be 10 milliequivalents per hour. With the resuscitation, really remember to look at magnesium. A lot of times, even if you have like a 2.5, 2.3 potassium, the replacement of magnesium can actually be just as critical. And in fact, magnesium replacement, really aggressive magnesium replacement is quite low risk and it can dramatically improve your potassium. And so it's another thing too, if you've been consistently replacing potassium and you're struggling to get the potassium up, it might be a good idea to check your magnesium levels because that could really help inform again what your overall potassium is just you're just fighting a losing battle at that point right so those are things to consider again in the less aggressive replacement or we don't have renal failure a lot of times you can do that initial replacement maybe checking labs once a day every six to eight hours with your renal failure patients you want to be a little more careful with your potassium replacement. Well, I was trying to stay under 20 minutes, ended up being 30 minutes, but I think this episode, I hope it's helpful. I think hypokalemia is so common in critical care. And if you're interested, get the Internet Book of Critical Care out. It has a great discussion, too, of some acidotic states and actually how they affect the kidneys. It's really interesting. There's a whole host of medications just related to how it affects the kidneys and some really unique acidotic states and how they affect it. Also, they have a really good detailed explanation of how alkalosis affects the 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 movement of, of potassium. And so those would be great a further reading to really kind of dig in a little bit more. But thanks for hanging in. I think this was a good, important episode. And on Monday, we'll talk about hyperkalemia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>